Well, if you would open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, please. Galatians chapter 6, we are approaching the end of our sermon series through the book of Galatians with only a couple more sermons to go. Galatians chapter 6, if you would begin with me in verse 12, for these are the very words of God. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." Well, Paul turns his attention back on the Judaizers. If you recall, most of this letter has been a direct response to them. At times, it has been very forceful in how Paul has addressed them. And then he took an extended break from dealing with the Judaizers to deal with the Christians in Galatia specifically. And we saw this throughout pretty much all of chapter 5, where he reminded these Christians to be led by the Spirit and not by the law. And he reminded them that the Spirit gives certain fruits and that those who are outside of the Spirit have their own fruits. And he reminded them what it looks like when a church is governed and led by spiritual worship and how we ought to treat one another and the way we are to love one another. And so we've spent a lot of time focusing on love for the church and love for God's people and being led by the Spirit. But as Paul concludes his letter, he turns back his focus to the Judaizers. He's got one last word for them before he finally drives that final nail into the coffin. And our task before us today is to see the way Paul criticizes their motives. Primarily up to this point, Paul has been criticizing their doctrine. He's been criticizing their false gospel and their false teaching. But now he's going to criticize their motives specifically. And while we examine the motives that drove the Judaizers into these errors, we will then remind ourselves of particular motives that we need to avoid if we want to be faithful Christians. We are, in other words, going to learn how not to do things, specifically in regards to what are some of the motivations and desires of this life that keep us from being faithful Christians. And what I think we're going to focus on, well, not what I think, what we are going to focus on, Two P's, P's, praise and persecution. Specifically, the love of praise and the fear of persecution. There are few desires, motivations that will wreck our Christian faith quicker than a love of praise and fear of persecution. And this is what the Judaizers were infected with. Let's begin with their love of praise in verse 12. Paul tells the Galatians that these false teachers, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. So the first motivation that Paul points out for us is that what's ultimately behind this Judaizing obsession with making sure these Gentiles get circumcised. He's criticized it theologically already, but now it's more personal. Why is it that it's so important to them to travel from Jerusalem into the Galatian churches and force people to become Jews before they can come saved? What's behind that? Well, they want to make a good showing in the flesh. A good showing. They want to impress their colleagues. 
They want to impress their friends. We have a, a word for this, this, this idea of they want to make a good showing. In our kind of modern, vulgar tongue, we call this virtue signaling. Right? A good showing, good show, virtue signal. It's the same thing. They're virtue signaling. These are men who are simply interested in the performance of winning converts and showing all their buddies back in Jerusalem how dedicated they are to the Judaizing ways. Paul says, I know why they're doing this. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. And it reminds us, I mean, this is not something that's foreign to the Christian faith at large in our day and age today. How many people, how many, whether it's authors or Christian leaders or even, not even at a popular level, people you might know who are willing to compromise their Christian life, compromise Christian doctrine for the sake of impressing their secular buddies, impressing their colleagues at work, putting on a good show. These were men who loved to be praised. And they wanted a good report. They wanted the accolades and the praise of their colleagues. And this was how they got there. Why is it that they want them to be circumcised to make a good showing? And this is what Paul means, by the way, in verse 14 at the end of it. Or forgive me, I, I, I didn't mean to say 14. Look at verse uh, 13. He says, for even those who are circumcised do not... Them who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, what? That they may boast in your flesh. This is connected to that good showing. They want to go back to their friends and boast about their flesh. What does that mean? They convinced them to get circumcised. They convinced the uncircumcised Gentiles to get circumcised, and they're going to go home and brag about it. Look at we got the, we got the Gentiles in the club. We convinced the Gentiles to become one of us. They're bragging about their flesh. They're boasting and bragging and putting on a good show. This is all about the love of praise. They want the pats on the back and the high fives from their friends, from their communities, from their families. These men are seeking the applause of their culture. And so it is an important reminder for us today that Paul tells us elsewhere that the cross of Christ to the world is foolishness. We, we should have no interest in earning the applause and the praise of men. True Christianity will never be cool. True Christianity will never be attractive and fun to the unconverted. The only way to receive the applause of the world is to compromise on Christianity and to give the world what they want. And that's what the Judaizers did. Their culture, their world looked different than ours. But it remains the same today that we cannot be led in our Christian faith by a desire to look good to people. The Judaizers had a love of praise and that ended up contributing to the shipwreck of their faith. If we want to live faithful lives in this world, we need to be prepared to look like fools. Your friends are going to think you're a fool. Your colleagues are going to think you're a fool. Christianity is foolishness to the world. And we have to accept that. We need to seek the praise of one and one only. We live in a stage performance with an audience of one. We seek to glorify God. He is the only person whose praise and opinion we should care about. The Judaizers, it wasn't the case. They wanted to make a good showing 
to their community. They wanted to boast in their work. And Paul says that is ultimately telling the Galatians, that's why they're here. This isn't about you, their love for you, their love for God, their love for the law. This is about them. And he's going to prove that in a minute. But first, I want us to look at the flip side of the praise coin. On the other side of this love for praise, what goes naturally with a love for praise is then a fear of persecution. And that's also what Paul says in verse 12. It is not, though, that they simply are, want to make a good showing in the flesh, they who would force you to be circumcised, but also what? That they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Very rarely, although sometimes it happens, the world, if they're not going to praise you, very rarely are they just going to simply leave you alone. There's, we don't often exist in that middle ground where they either praise us or they just leave us alone. The world's antagonistic approach to Christ, as Christ says in Matthew 11, if you are not for me, you are against me. The world does not have a neutral approach to Christianity. It's not just, hey, if they give us what we want, we'll praise them. If not, we'll leave them alone. They will either praise you, but if you're not seeking their praise, then their ultimate interest is to then return that with persecution. They're not going to leave you alone, though. They want to praise you or they want to persecute you. So the Judaizers were not just obsessed with the praise of men, but they were fearful of the persecution of men. They knew that if they preached the cross, the way the cross was supposed to be preached, that their communities would not take well to that message. He says, very explicitly, they did not want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Because the gospel as Paul preaches it, the consistent gospel, would require these Jewish people to admit that righteousness does not come through the law of Moses, which is what the Jews had been believing for such a long time. It would require them to admit that when Jesus died and rose again, he ushered in a new covenant that fulfilled many of the important ceremonies and sacrifices that the Jews had clung to. They had to admit that the law has been fulfilled, that the ceremonies have been transformed, and that righteousness was never through Moses anyway. And that is not the message the Jews wanted to hear. And so the Judaizers thought, we can blend Christianity with Judaism. We can kind of have the best of both worlds. We'll, we'll still believe in Jesus and we'll still believe in the cross, but we're not going to give up being saved by the law. You need to keep the law if you want to be saved. And we're not going to give up the fact that circumcision is ultimately what brings you into the people of God and that the Jews are the people of God. So if these Christians want to be saved, yeah, they need to believe in Jesus, but we're going to blend Judaism in that. You need to obey the law and you need to get circumcised. Best of both worlds, right? Now we're appeasing the Christians because we believe in Jesus and we're appeasing the Jews because we're enforcing the law and we're enforcing circumcision. But what did we learn throughout this gospel? Or forgive me, throughout this letter. That's not the gospel. The gospel is pure and it cannot be blended with false pagan religion. The gospel has its own objective message revealed from Christ and we don't get to obscure that or blend in our favorite theologies with it. So Paul said they were so afraid of being persecuted by the Jews that they distorted the gospel. If they would have preached it the way I'm preaching it, then they would face the same kind of persecutions that I face. So in other words, to put it bluntly, you can't be a Christian if you're a coward. The Judaizers were cowards. They're fearful. Christianity, there's no room for that. Because we have to understand, just like with our last point, the case is not different today. 
The Christian gospel is just as offensive to 21st century American America as it was to 1st century uh, J- Jerusalem. 1st century Galatia. The cross is still offensive today. And so our message, purely and rightly preached, is going to make people upset. It's going to bring persecution. It's inevitable. And don't take my word for it. The Apostle Paul tells us this in 2 Timothy 3.12 when he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When you sign up to be a Christian, you sign up for persecution. Paul says you join in the sufferings of Christ. It's not an option. The Christian life without persecution is not presented. That's not even on the table. You get a life of Christian suffering or you reject Christianity altogether. Now you might be thinking, well, that's kind of scary because if I look at my life, you know, my persecutions have been very little. Does that make me less of a Christian? And I would argue no. Here's why. Keep your marker here. This is a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's important. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is pretty well known among people. It's sometimes nicknamed the Hall of Faith. The whole chapter is basically the Bible just crediting these amazing patriarchs of our faith, these lead examples of our faith, and and how their faith uh, brought them many blessings, how their faith brought them so much favor and honor with God. But then at the end of Hebrews 11, we also see that faith doesn't just bring you blessings, it also brings you persecution, and it was their faith that helped them endure these persecutions. And so let's look at this list of persecutions, shall we, in verse 36 and onward. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, and then one of my favorite verses, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. We read a list like that, and as 21st century Americans, we are suddenly almost guilt-tripped because our persecutions are just so light here. Right? Uh, It's not hard for me to examine the room and realize that no one in this room was sawn in half. That's not something you've gone through. I don't think any of you have ever been put in prison for your faith. I don't think any of you have ever been flogged and beaten for your faith. I don't think any of you have ever, ever been exiled into wandering, living in caves in the desert for your faith. And so it's easy for us as Christians to to feel almost guilty because this stuff is not just in the past. It's happening today. I I, I follow a friend on social media who is just outraged at how little uh, the American culture and specifically the American church really focuses and understands what's happening around the world. And so every single day to raise awareness, he posts about Christian persecutions happening all around the world. And let me just say, it is devastating how often he has something to post. His latest area of focus has been the continent of Africa, and he posts nearly every single day 50 more executions in Africa. 
50 more Nigerians slaughtered. We're talking going door to door, slaughtering Christians, slaughtering children. It's happening today in the world, today. It's not just this Old Testament stuff. Christians in China, you know what's happening then today? Arrested, taken off to these camps. We don't even know what happens to them. You know what's happening to Christians in North Korea? Fed to dogs. I mean, this is not just this old crazy Bible stories. It's happening today, but not here. Not happening here. But here's what's so interesting though, and this is the point I'm getting at. We've got this list of all these intense persecutions, but how does this list begin? Back in 36, what is it that some Christians have suffered? Mocking. Your text might say jeering or taunts. Look at how comfortable the author of Hebrews is with throwing mocking into a list of flogging, chains, stoning, sawn in half, killed with a sword, exiled. He doesn't separate them into these kind of more godly persecutions versus less godly persecutions. It's just all persecution. So I would remind you as we go back to Galatians, you do not have to be imprisoned for your faith to be persecuted for your faith. You do not have to be cut in half or stabbed with swords to be persecuted with your faith. The Bible says mocking, taunting, jeering. These are legitimate persecutions that made it into the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. So I would remind you that while we are very, we should be very grateful for the country we live in, very grateful for the country we live in. But at the same time, don't fall into this pit of despair and go looking for persecution because I want to be like, you know, all all the saints of old who are killed for their faith, martyred for their faith. We don't need to go looking for more persecution. It is here. It's here. It's not as bad, but it's here. And it's, I'm not a prophet, but judging, just judging by the way the wind's blowing, I think it's probably going to get worse. And so I I want us to to think for a moment as we go back to Galatians, how are we going to handle that? And it was amazing. We were listening to R.C. Sproul in our Sunday school class today. And he was going through the parable of the pearl of great price and the parable of the hidden treasure. And he was talking about how the hidden treasure, this pearl, the, the parables were ultimately someone finding something of great value. And it was of so much value that they were willing to sell everything they had to buy it. And Jesus says that's ultimately what the Christian life is. is we find the kingdom of God. We find Christ. And we see this is so valuable I'll trade everything for it. You can have my body, you can have my life, you can have my family, you can have my stuff. This is far more important. And so I would remind us that, like I said, I don't know where this country's going. And I would, I would encourage you to not make too many assumptions based off Fox and CNN as to where this country's going. But it is very possible that things aren't getting better. It's very, it is very possible that Uh, life for our children in 20 years is going to be harder than life for us today. And for their grandchildren, it would be even harder for them. This is very real possibility. I could imagine things even in our own lifetime. I would not be surprised if sometime in our future Redeemer Christian Fellowship loses our nonprofit status for hate speech. What are we going to do when persecution comes? How are we going to handle it? Paul says that we will be persecuted. The Judaizers were willing to compromise their faith. They were willing to adopt, okay, fine, we'll just believe what they believe to avoid the persecution. And we're seeing seeing that in our culture today, all around us, churches folding and capitulating on important, basic Christian doctrines. Why? Because it satisfies the mob. 
because it appeases the angry, vitriolic culture that hates God's word. That's what the Judaizers did, and that's what these progressive churches all around us are doing today. This offends the world, so we'll reject it. The Judaizers said, telling people they don't need circumcision, they don't need to keep the feast, they don't need any of these Old Testament stuff, it offends our Jewish contemporaries, so we'll keep it. Paul says, that's not the Christian life. What has God said? Believe it and act on it no matter what they think, no matter what they do. Christianity requires courage. When we are faced with persecution, we need to, like 1 Peter 4, 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Trust God with your persecution. Just trust him. And you do good. You keep the faith. You keep the fight. You obey the word. Trust God. He's faithful. You might get sawn in two. You might get mocked. Or maybe repentance will overflow and our nation will change and we'll experience great blessing. Who knows what's going to happen? But trust your faithful creator. Keep the faith and obey him. But a love of praise and a fear of persecution will destroy our faith. We must, by the power of the Spirit, fight against these things. Now, before we wrap this up, the text does something helpful for us because it might be easy for us to say, how does Paul know this about them? Right? Isn't this kind of judgmental? Paul is telling us what's in their hearts. How does Paul know that? Well, why can't we just accuse Paul? Well, Paul, your message is just for your glory too. You're just afraid of being persecuted by a different group. How does Paul know this? Is this just part of the apostolic office that God gives him insight into everybody's heart conditions? No. We'll find places in the scripture that's not true at all. Remember, Paul was very surprised in our last sermon series, the pastoral epistles. Paul was very surprised when Demas left. He didn't know it was in Demas' heart. How does Paul know? How, isn't this not just judgmental assumptions? Well, Paul tells us how he knows. Look at what he says in verse 13. That those who want to make a good showing in the flesh and boast in your flesh, those who are afraid of persecution that comes with the cross, here's how he knows this. Verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that you, they may boast in your flesh. So here's what Paul has done. Paul has examined their way of life, and their way of life is contradictory to their claims. So Paul knows they don't really believe what they say. Otherwise, their lives would be very different. In other words, here's what he means. He's saying they don't even obey the law. They, all they care about is circumcision and a couple important feast days. They're not interested in imposing the Mosaic law and actually living it out faithfully. They don't, they don't follow the law. So what does that tell us? It tells us they don't really care about the law as much as they say they do. They go down with this great piety. The holy righteous law of Moses, you must keep it for it is good and it is righteous and it was God's deliverance to our people. And then they go home and they reject it all week long. They don't obey it. They don't think about it. They don't know it. So they don't really think it's that great, do they? They don't really admire it that much, do they? 
So Paul knows there's something else driving this right now. It's not love for God. It's not zeal for the law. They proved all week long they have no zeal for the law because they, they, they disregard it. It's just circumcision they care about. And by the way, he said this earlier in Galatians. Remember he told them, I would remind you that you who are being circumcised are required to keep the whole law. You don't get to just pick and choose. Paul knows this is not about the law of God. This is not about pious zeal for holiness. He knows there's something else behind this. You know, we see this a lot in our day and age. I had a friend who, um, his current wife, when they started dating, she grew up in a, in a, what we would call a nominal Roman Catholic family. And what I mean by that is they were Roman Catholic in name only. They never went to church. Never. They never, free me, mass. They never went to mass. Which, by the way, in the Roman Catholic system, that's how you're saved. So that's a big deal to skip out on mass. Your sins can't be forgiven if you skip out on mass. So that's a big deal, and they're not going. They never go. They never talk about it. They don't know anything about it. It hardly ever came up in their family. It just if people ask them, yeah, we're Catholics. And so this young gal, she went off to college, went off her own, and she started going to a different church, and she got saved and started participating in an evangelical church, and she married an evangelical. And then when they went back, and they started meeting with their family, and they would say things like, well, we're not Catholics anymore. We think that it's not actually true religion. And they lost it. How dare you? How dare you abandon the faith for 2,000 years, the one and only church that Christ established? They were so offended that they would dare say, I don't think Catholicism is true. But this was the very question I asked them. Why are they so offended? Because they don't even care about Catholicism. How do I know that? They haven't been to Mass in 20 years. They don't care about the true, pure doctrines of the Roman Catholic faith or the history. If they did care, they would live that out. So I knew this isn't about Catholicism. This is a personal pride thing. You've offended our family. You've offended our culture. You've offended our custom. You're telling us you're wrong. But it had nothing to do with zeal for God and the truth. And that's what Paul sees in the Judaizers. These are men who love being Jewish more than they love God. They simply love the customs and the history of their faith. And they're offended that someone would come along and say, you know that whole circumcision thing? It's fulfilled in Christ. You don't need that anymore. How dare you take from us what we have been practicing for thousands of years? But they don't care about the law. This is about tradition. This is about custom. This is about national identity. It is not about zeal. And by the way, Paul has put his money where his mouth is. So we could turn the tables on Paul. Let's, let's, let's not be so sympathetic to Paul for a minute. Okay, Paul, fine, fine, fine. I'll agree. Why don't you prove it then? How do we know that you're in this for the right reasons? How do we know we should trust you? You're not just much of a hypocrite as them. How do we know? Well, he delivers the answer to that in one of the most powerful, convincing ways. I consider this the final nail in the coffin of the Judaizers. Look at verse 17. Other than the benediction, this is the very last thing Paul leaves them with. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. You want to know how we know Paul is sincere? He's got persecution scars to prove it. You can read through Philippians. You can read through, I believe it's 2 Corinthians. 
or forgive me, 2 Corinthians alone, Paul will actually list all the persecutions he endured in his life. And they're intense. Now, some of those maybe happened after he wrote Galatians, but one of the things we know most likely happened before he wrote Galatians, before he went to Galatia, was the stoning at Lystra. Now, I know I'm from Colorado, but stoning, we're not talking about that kind of stoning. We're talking about Hebraic Judaism stoning. You want to know what that was? That was the whole community grabbed a bunch of rocks, surrounded you, and they threw rocks at you until you died. Paul went through that. And his was so bad, the reason they let up is because they thought he died. This was a man who was stoned nearly to death. I would imagine that that left some scars. I would imagine Paul from then on carried with him everywhere he went physical reminders that he is not in this for popularity. Paul is essentially saying, you want to know what the difference is between me and the Judaizers? They have a mark on their body that they're so proud of. Their circumcision. They're so proud of their circumcision. I've got marks on my body way more valuable than circumcision. The persecutions of the gospel. Those are the marks that I bear on my body. Those are the mutilations of my flesh. And those speak a whole lot louder than their circumcision does. So don't let them trouble me anymore. Don't you dare question my motives anymore. If you, if you want to question my motives, if you need proof of my faith, look no further than my bodily scars. Paul proves with his life, I'm in this for God. I'm in this for zeal for the truth. That's why, unlike the Judaizers, I'm willing to be stoned for my faith. Unlike the Judaizers, I'm willing to be ostracized and mocked and excluded from the Jewish community. Because the Christian truth is what actually matters to me. By the way, that word marks that he mentions there, it's the word in the Greco-Roman culture that was, off, it was used not only of injuries and scars, but it was also used for the slave brandings. All right, Rome would buy a slave and like cattle, you need to know it's your property, so they brand you with a mark. Paul says that he has the brandings of Christ. The same Paul who in many of his letters begins by describing himself as a slave unto Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying? My persecution scars are proof of who I belong to. I'm a slave of the cross. I'm a slave of Christ. And he's branded me by allowing me the privilege to join in his sufferings, in his persecution. So you don't need proof of what I'm really in this for. You've got it. Paul is living a Christian life which proves to the world that his hopes are not in the comforts of this life. The Judaizers are not. And Paul says, what more debate do we need to have? What more debate do we need to have? So what must we do? How do we handle it? Well, Paul summarizes that. Look at verse 14. This is how Paul summarizes it. They who are desiring to be praised, who are desiring to boast in your circumcision, Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the way we respond to our natural inclination to love the applause of men is to constantly, by the power of the Spirit, mortify that desire and focus on boasting in nothing but Jesus. 
The gospel is our boast. If you want to brag about something, brag about Christ. If you want to boast about something to your friends, to your colleagues, to your workers, if you want to brag and talk about, make it Christ. He's your boast. You want to know what the best thing about you is? Jesus. The most worthwhile thing about you is Jesus and his gospel. And Paul is not saying, what he's not saying is, he's not saying that I boast because I'm so great that Christ died for me. He's saying we actually boast in the cross. The Judaizers are bragging about all of their disciples. Look at all the Gentiles we got converted. Look at all the Gentiles we got joined the Jewish faith. They're boasting in their flesh. And Paul says, I'm not going to brag about all my disciples. I'm not going to brag about my missionary trips. I'm going to brag about one thing and one thing only, that God the Father sent his only begotten son into the earth to take on human flesh so that whoever believed in him might never perish but have eternal life. That's my boast. That's what I'll brag about. That's my glory. That's the only thing I care about. We do not need to boast in the world. We do not need to boast in our accomplishments. We boast in Jesus. We boast in the cross. Our zeal is for God's glory, not our own. May we decrease so that he might increase. That's the first thing we do. We boast in the cross alone. Now, what's the second thing we do to fight this, these improper motives? Well, look at what he says. Speaking of the cross, verse 14 We boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what happened in the cross? More than just the forgiveness of sins, what happened? By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul has mentioned this concept already. In Galatians 2.20, Galatians 5.24, he's used similar language to this. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have died to the flesh. I've been crucified to the flesh. This is a, a theme in Galatians, and he brings it back here. But here's what we have is a perfect example of what this actually looks like in real life application. What does it mean that I have died with Christ? What does it mean that when Christ died, that by my faith with him, I also died? Well, here's two applications of it. When I am desiring the praise of men, slaughter that. Crucify that passion. Nail that passion to the cross. When I am fearful of the persecutions of the gospel, crucify that passion. Nail that passion to the cross. Paul says, I do not have to desire the praise of men. I do not have to be fearful of persecution. Why? Because those earthly desires died with me when my old man died. And they didn't resurrect from the grave with me. Those are old man desires, not new creature. Not new creature. What it means to die with Christ is that truly the glory of God is our top priority so that I don't have to care anymore what the world thinks about me. I don't care. I don't have to care anymore what the world might do to me. I don't care. Uh, Those desires, those fears, they were crucified on the cross. We put those things to death and we live to God. Perhaps it's better said nowhere else, turn to the book of Philippians. This is essentially what Paul says elsewhere in Philippians chapter 3. Paul's going to mention all the things he could boast about. And he's going to tell us why he doesn't boast in those things. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. Paul tells all those in Philippi, look out for the dogs, 
for those evildoers, for those who wish to mutilate your flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, let him know I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see this perfect summary of our text, of our application? All the things you could brag about, rubbish. All the sufferings of this life, rubbish. Everything is lost and compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and being found in him. It makes everything else worth it. Perhaps the best way to conclude is through the, whip, through the, the writings of Isaac Watts who wrote the great hymn we are about to sing when I survey the wondrous cross. I think that he puts to paper exactly the application of this text when he says... When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast except in the death of Christ, my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, from his hands, from his feet, see sorrow and love flow intermingled down. Did ever such a love and sorrow meet, or thorns ever compose such a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Because love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Before.